hey, hey. Welcome back to Stub Me Down. My name is JW. I'm here, as always, with my partner in crime, Skinny. Skinny, say hello to the people. Hey, man. What's up, everybody? Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed last episode. We had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, maybe too much fun. Right, Josh? I'm not quite sure what you're referring to there, but... <laughs> I will say welcome back to those of you that have checked us out in episodes one, two, or three, and welcome if episode four of Stub Me Down is your first time on the bus with us. We are really excited for today's show. Of course, when we start saying, eh, today's show sucks, maybe go listen to a different podcast. No, don't. Don't, don't. Today, we are going to steer a little bit away from fish. We had been talking about fish our first three episodes, so we're going to do something a little bit different today. And Skinny, I don't know about you, but we've started off each of our previous shows with some sort of reflection and complaint or addressing some sort of situation on our previous episodes. I'm happy to report that episode three was controversy-free and I, at least as far as from my perspective, so I, if you have something that you would like to share, by all means. Oh, well, episode four will remain controversy free. I don't know what Dobbs is talking about. I guess he feels the need to start apologizing to everybody on his podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm cool with everything that Dobbs has said. As a matter of fact... Maybe we should call it no apologies, or are we calling this one no apologies because I've heard a couple of things. No apologies would be a good one. I'm going to jot a note down over here. Um, today, we, as I said, we're going to veer a little bit away from fish. Remember, although we have seen quite a number of fish shows together, gosh, we got to be combined 250 shows with 70 something of them being together. So there's a lot to talk about there. We have seen other bands together. We have experienced a wide variety of music over 20 years. So we do want to make sure we touch on some other things as well. Even though Fish is current for us, a band we're still seeing regularly, we want to make sure, especially since this is a, an opportunity for us to reflect on concerts we've been to in the past, we want to make sure we are touching on some of the other things we've seen as well. Anything else to add before we go ahead and take a look at what we're going to get into today? No, we've seen some really good shit, and it's not just been all fish. It just so happens that like, when you drive a certain bus for a while like you like the way it feels so we've been driving that bus for three episodes uh we're going to change directions i don't know if we're going to be driving a ferrari but it could be an escort i don't know you know i hope it's not a lacar i think we're going in the right direction here and i'm i'm pretty psyched to get stubbed down by j-dub are you ready to stub me down or you got something else that you want to apologize for <laughs> Um, I No apologies, but I do want to just quickly touch on last episode, Skinny Stub Me Down, for a great show. His second Fish show, we took a look at June 29th, 2000. Fish played two nights up there at the 
venue formerly known as the Garden State Arts Center. It's now the PNC Bank Arts Center in Homedale, New Jersey. My hometown venue grew up seeing shows there. And this was the second of a two-night run that we talked about. Really great show. Strong second set. Couple real long jams. We had a really good conversation about the sand. And not only how cool that version was, but more of a greater significance about that particular song. One that really got you hooked on fish and one that has been more than just a tune for me over the course of my fish experience. Uh, The top fish song for me. And so we had a great conversation about that. Today, I get the opportunity to stub Skinny down. So we're going to go ahead and take a look at a show that I have pulled. We went with a, as I said, a non-fish stack of tickets. I pulled from my Grateful Dead-related stack of tickets. Skinny, if you're ready, uh, let me get you out of that shitty seat on the lawn and down to the path. Are you ready to be stubbed down? I am. I'm excited. Let's go. We are going to discuss Phil Lesh and Friends from their fall tour in 2001, a Saturday show, November 17th, 2001 at the Stabler Arena, which is at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. This show is fucking awesome. This is one of those shows that 20 years later still blows my mind. And to give a little bit of context as far as where we were here we were seeing a lot of phil and friends during this time period fish was on hiatus we had seen i think four shows over the summer tour if if that's correct is that is that about right yeah we uh we had started seeing phil and friends before i even saw fish first show together seeing them was 2000 at the tower theater i hope that gets pulled at some point uh, cause that's a great show too, but we were like, wow, they're, they're really taking off. Eventually they've, they've had a bunch of, um, uh, we had seen a bunch of different people play with them. I mean, I, I just off the top of my head, Kim Ock, Billy Payne, you know, you're talking about Kim Ock, who a lot of people swear by Kim Ock and, and he is really, really good. Billy Payne from Little Feet. Uh, there's just a bunch of different musicians that were rolling with him. And then all of a sudden, uh, Phil kind of drove it down to these, you know, him and these other guys. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's Haynes, Herring, Baracko, Molo, and Phil. So the Q, right? I'm right about that. Yes, you are 100% right. And and we did. We saw another, you, you know, you said Kim Ock, Billy Payne, Jeff Pivar. We saw a lot of different iterations with Phil. And they were all good, largely because of Phil. Uh, I mean, and obviously, I'm not, those are all very, very talented musicians, of course. No, you're right about Phil. <laughs> but, but for some reason, the Warren Haynes, Jimmy Herring, Rob Baracco, John Molo with Phil lineup really clicked. And... Warren Haynes and Jimmy Herring playing guitar together on stage is some of the coolest music, some of the coolest interplay. 
They switch back and forth on who leads. They they just were so intuitive as they played together. And you can really hear that in, especially this fall run. And we saw this show a couple more after this one up in New York City. Shows for another time, as we like to say. But they were really hitting on all cylinders when we got to Stabler for this show. And this was our first of a couple on their fall tour run. So we were super amped for this. For me, I was still learning the Grateful Dead. I had gotten into them, as I mentioned in a previous episode, in high school. Jerry died right before I went to college. So my Grateful Dead knowledge was limited to, you know, skeletons in the closet and maybe one or two other bootlegs that I found at Jack's Music Shop in Red Bank, New Jersey. And after I started to really get into the Grateful Dead, the catalog is just so expansive. And going to these shows, I learned so much about what the Grateful Dead was about musically and learning that from not only seeing these shows, but seeing them with you and seeing them with the deadheads that we were going with really made for just an incredible fall, which we needed after, if you look at the calendar, you can probably figure out why. I totally agree with everything you're saying. And the set lists were beginning... Uh, especially in this fall tour, blossom into something that I had never heard uh, when I was seeing the Grateful Dead. Again, my experience with them was limited to 87 to 95. I saw some really good shows. I saw some shows that weren't so good. Um, But then what I noticed when we first started seeing Phil and Friends, especially when they got to this kind of definition, which uh, they called the Q, you know, Phil and Friends, Quintet, however you wanted to say it, they started to really drive these set lists that I I was never aware of. Uh, They were dream set lists from the late 60s or early 70s, stuff that, you know, because of my age, I I was never able to see. Sometimes I I dream about being 13 and, and, I don't know, going to see 83 Spring Tour. I I don't know. You know, so I... (laughs) I, I agree with your context there. Uh, we were seeing it with a with some really good friends, and um, I'm super happy that that uh, you stubbed me down for this one. A couple of other quick notes: this show was in the middle of about a twenty, we'll call it twenty three shows that Phil and Friends or the Quintet played over this fall, beginning in uh, the beginning of November, going through New Year's. And that also included playing Warren Haynes' Christmas Jam and uh, a couple of New Year's shows out West. So we were kind of right in the thick of it with the shows that we saw. But that gives us a little bit of an idea. They were doing a lot of touring uh, during that. They had a very extensive summer tour. I think they played a couple of spring shows in 2001. So they were really our replacement at that time for Fish, where we had been seeing Fish or at least I had been seeing fish when I started to get into them five to 10 times a year. This was really now in replacement of that. And I have to say, I had just as much fun with the quintet, with these shows as I have had at any of the fish shows that I have seen. So did I. I thought that was uh, 
every show that we went to seeing these guys, they did something a little bit different that I had never seen before either. And I think really that was kind of the highlight. And I, I, all I'm going to do here is just back up what you're saying, because I felt the same way about these shows when I was seeing them that they were, God, substitute is such a, a stupid word now that I think about it. Uh, but they definitely put something else in the mix as far as the catalog was concerned for me. Um, a lot of people talk about what they've seen or what they've experienced. And I think that's all wonderful. Uh, when you start to talk about what you've experienced, it's important, uh, especially for music. And I was seeing things that I had never experienced with the Grateful Dead. And I, I, I think that was uh, the best part of it. Now. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we go ahead and. Do you want me to start talking about the set? Uh, you want me to go run down the set list, Dubs? Are you ready? Yeah, let's let's go ahead and stop dicking around and go ahead and get into the nuts and bolts of this. So why don't you go ahead and roll through the first set and All right, awesome, man. Okay, thanks. And and thanks for stubbing me down. So instead of saying apologies, I'm just gonna have a lot of gratitude for you as a friend. They started off with a jam, which uh they did every show. <laughs> I can't tell you about it. I I I've listened to it. <laughs> One of the people that we always went to see Phil and Friends with, I, I, I was the set keeper. I carry around a set book, keep track of the sets. And he and I always got into a debate whether it was jam, which I preferred, or intro, which he preferred. And... I wrote it down, so it was always Jim, but it was nice to um, be validated whenever I looked at the official set list. And they didn't say intro, it said Jim. It, they weren't like talking or like saying poetry. It's a jam. I mean, you know, everybody shuts up, the lights go down, the house lights, the stage lights come on, and they start jamming. It's not an intro. All right, so after the jam, Rainy Day Women, which was an instrumental, which was very interesting because that's always cool when the crowd is like, uh, I know this, but I'm not sure what it is. And then they didn't sing it. And then you had to wait till you got to the car. And then uh, a Watchtower, Furious, clocks in at 22 minutes. It's unbelievable. Uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, which is, uh, that's a really good song too. I, I don't even know what to say about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm just getting crazy. A Passenger, which is a very rare thing to see uh, for a deadhead later on in the 80s. Uh, a, a Sweet Eyes of the World. And then a No More Do I, Box of Rain. Great set. The Jam, Into Rainy Day Women, Into Watchtower, Into Tomorrow Never Knows, Into Passenger was unreal. It was unreal. And the... The see I know you have something you want to ask me, but the 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 seamlessness of the transitions for I wish I was a musician just so I could do that, just so I could improvise. And 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 Phil is a band director and he knows where everybody was, but the way they slipped into and out of and back into the next song, it, it was like they were made to go together like that and when you're standing there watching you're basically looking at 45 minutes 50 minutes of uninterrupted music 
and super groovy music, a lot of dancing, sick, sick set. As you you might call it, this would be considered maybe a top to bottom for set? This is top to bottom, exactly the type of set that you would want to see if you were going to see Phil and Friends on whatever night you were going to see him. So I totally agree with that. Uh, There's a lot I want to get to. Some of my questions may revolve around catalog and, you know, what that means uh, for JW. So we already discussed, you know, a little bit earlier in the episode about uh, this quintet and they put out an album there and back again, which I felt like, uh, if you want to hear my personal notes about that album, I felt compared to a lot of dead studio albums. I know I'm going to get a lot of shit for that one, but I don't really care uh, because there's some really good music on it. And my first question for Dobbs is, how do you feel like this new material, especially in this set, the No More Do I and the, uh, well, that's the next one, but the No More Do I, I'll just say that one. How do you feel that the song No More Do I or any of the other new stuff fit into their catalog? We'll we'll talk about um, another song in the second set. We can talk about that even before I get to it, but how do you feel like they fit into the Grateful Dead catalog? It was Phil and Robert Hunt. I mean, No More Do I, this show was the debut of No More Do I. And that's a Robert Hunter, Phil Lesh, song so it's going to have a grateful dead feel but it is also written in such a way that i think really accentuates warren and jimmy warren sings it i love this song there's a nice guitar solo in after the second verse and then there's the jam that comes in about halfway through and it is high powered it's intricate the interplay between jimmy and warren with phil driving the bus with the bass and baracko on keys and mola it is it's my favorite song off of there and back again obviously we saw it a whole bunch of times in this first set though the passenger was something that really felt right for me and the idea of me being a passenger as I'm literally hanging out with old deadheads and you have to keep in mind it's 2001 I'm in my early 20s I'm hanging out with you you're a little a couple years older than me but we were hanging out with some people that older and had kind of taken me under their musical wing, if you will. And so Passenger struck me, especially that night, as we embarked on seeing Phil and Friends as much as we did. And the lyrics still, to this point, get me. Passenger, don't you hear me? Destination, seen unclearly. What is a man deep down inside but a raging beast with nothing to hide? I mean, that just... You're standing on the floor of that arena and Barack was singing that and felt like home. And you actually used that phrase when we talked about the last show. And this was that feeling for me. And to be there with 
some people who, let's face it, we had only at this point still only been friends for less than a couple of years. And to have that connection that quickly, to be a passenger with you guys, and I was a little bit, you know, the, the fourth wheel of that because you guys had all known each other for a long time. Just a little bit of context, the other people we were at this show with, uh, J.O., who's a friend of ours that's been mentioned once or twice on the pod before, and his late brother, Joe, who was older than all of us, but kind of the big brother friend that, I mean, I have two big brothers, so he's not the brother I never had, but he was a big brother to me in a very different sense than the brothers that I was born to. And so that was a a big moment for me during this particular show. And that passenger, it's a sick version. They go into the eyes of the world, another beautifully composed song. And then the No More Do I that comes out of that eyes, again, another absolutely flawless transition from eyes into no more do i into box of rain it just it was it was a powerful experience man dude that's awesome i i will tell you this that's why i asked that question really is because uh i felt like the the funny thing is like after that show we didn't know what the song was called shifting sands i think is what i had written down yeah, Josh wrote Shifting Sands in his little leather Barnes & Noble book so that we could find out what, we, what they played. Because I'm always the guy that doesn't remember right after the show. I, I don't... What was that one? And it was called Shifting Sands at the time, so we could... Uh, we, we Maybe we should have said something to Phil, but I was screaming at Phil, Phil Daddy, a lot during that set break. And I think one of the reasons I was saying Phil Daddy was just because... Uh, they really brought it, and I think they brought it so much that even to release a song that nobody knew what it was, the absolute breakdowns that they have in that, and I, I have to say that version is amazing, and it twiddles out into a box of rain to end that set. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it fits with the catalog. Do you? Perfectly. Seamlessly. And the way that Phil incorporated a lot as you said earlier on in the episode the way they were playing music that they didn't necessarily play all the time as the grateful dead and the fact that he was bringing some of those songs really back to life in this band i remember walking out of some of these shows and and you guys saying man i never saw the grateful dead play passenger they only played this song a couple of times, or they only played that once or twice. I never saw this. And and to be a part of that, when I had never seen The Grateful Dead, I never saw Jerry Garcia. So for me, I was going and I was absorbing, if there was a Grateful Dead cover band, act, member, anyone doing anything Grateful Dead related, I was there because I was trying to soak up as much as I could and get as close to what seeing a Grateful Dead show was like, obviously with the caveat that I couldn't ever do it because Jerry was dead. But I do remember coming out of, whether it was Phil, whether it was 
further when they did their thing or the other ones or Dark Star Orchestra or Splintered Sunlight or any of the Grateful Dead acts that we've seen over the years looking to the three of you and saying, is this close? <laughs> is this where, is this what it was like? Is this what the music sounded like? How was it different? And I remember having plenty of conversation with Joe and with you and with J.O. about how this compared to the Grateful Dead and that experience musically, scene-wise, all of it. Jesus Christ, I was making, I was waiting for you to make one of those points. <laughs> this guy doesn't fucking stop answering my questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, wait for the apology next episode when Josh apologizes for talking too much. Uh, so, <laughs> all right, well, listen, I, I, I agree with all that. I mean, Josh, I always say shits and giggles. I don't like relative terms. Josh is eight years younger than I am. So I guess there's a little bit of a generational gap, but it's not that big. And once we started seeing this stuff, I was seeing new stuff too. So it's not like just because I'd seen the Grateful Dead, I had seen everything there was to see. I caught on way late just because, you know, I was 16, 17 in the mid to late eighties. So, you know, it's all about what you see. Uh, there were a lot of times we, we definitely said, no, it wasn't like that, but the experience might be the same. Um, you know, you take somebody along, uh, I love that line from uh, Birds, of, Birds of a Feather from Fish. I, you take somebody along and it's not like you're teaching them. It's just that they're a part of the scene now and, and you want to turn them on to good music. It's all positive, bro. It's all positive. <laughs> this, this was really a full shared experience for me. My fish experience had only been me with one other person. This was a crew going to these shows and whether it was this show in November or the summer shows or the ones we saw in the previous spring in in April of 2001 we were going with I mean there was at least four of us if not more people that we met and hung out with there so I really got into the crew aspect of seeing shows through Phil and Friends the fish crew didn't really come around for me until really 2.0 started so that was a, another big thing and and having that shared experience it, it brought me much closer to the music and to this new group of friends that i had that i, I was willing to do anything for and go and do anything with well not anything but yes <laughs> like musically yes. musically skinny so we meaning you and I, and then a bunch of other crews saw plenty of these shows, and I'll just say Phil and Friends, at a really, really close distance. You know, the vantage point for a lot of these shows uh, literally was like first five rows, which, again, I'm accessing some sort of privilege that I've seen a bunch of shows within the first five rows, but I did not uh, see that many shows from that vantage point when I was younger, a couple, but what is your sense of the floor? Uh, because I have a particular sense of this floor and I just remember it well. And even if you don't, it doesn't matter. But I'm going to derail here and say, like, what annoys you about the floor? And then you can maybe say what annoys you and then be positive afterwards. So 
I'm going negative <laughs> because I just want to hear you be a little bit negative about this show. Uh, if if there's anything negative to say, and if there's not, that's fine. What's your what's your sense of the floor, especially when you're up that close? Like I, I say, what annoys you? Because I want to know, but I also am asking, like you know, what do you like too? Not just because you're over six feet. So for this particular show, I don't know if you were trying to lead me in a specific direction, but as I recall from this specific show, we had plenty of room on the floor. I felt like we were in a, a good vantage point. We were probably within 20 feet of the stage. We were close, and it was not packed in. I don't know if it was the venue was undersold or or what, but... It was a great show to be on the floor. Now, I have been on other floors where... <laughs> Don't tell me all of them. It's not that much fun because of the proximity of the other spectators. Now that I'm a little bit older, I prefer if I'm going to be on the floor, I want to be towards the back. I want to have a little bit of room. But these experiences, and you're right, we did see a lot of these shows from somehow we got lucky on tickets. It would be interesting to look back and see exactly how many of these shows we saw from, say, the first 15 or 20 rows or in some sort of floor setting. Quite a few. Right. So the this particular show, I don't have any specific annoyances that I can remember in general regarding the floor at concerts sometimes it gets a, it gets a little bit too much and i do like to put a beer down i do like to have a little bit of elbow room to dance i do like to not have somebody cut through the middle of us like we're the road those are experiences that um are bound to happen when you go to concerts and you want to get a, a close vantage point. I really enjoyed seeing Phil up close because you could really watch him conduct the band. And so that's one thing I specifically remembered about this show was I remember watching Phil communicating with Jimmy and with Warren and with Rob and really signaling the changes. And that was super cool because it was like watching a conductor direct an orchestra, but it was rock and roll, if that makes sense. And Phil, I know, is a classically trained musician, and, and this was just so cool for me to be up front and see. Nowadays, I don't need to be a... I'm not a rail rider. I'm not going to go and, and post up and wait for hours and hours to get into a show and be in the first 20 feet. Um, but that's just me. I'm a little bit older. It's not a, I know what they look like. It's a cool experience. If I get seats that are up that close, absolutely. I love it. We were at a couple shows in Boston. We were in the second row. It was great. Great time. But give me the space. Give me the room to dance. Give me a place to put my shit down. You know, I sound like an old fucking man. You do. I do, but but that's kind of my impression of the floor here, and that was not, that was not a very big venue either. So the fact that we had that much space where we did on the floor, and and even the picture in my head was like we had 
significant. Like I could put my arms out and spin around in a circle and not touch anybody, and we all could. I felt it was very spaced out at this particular show. When we were seeing them, we were on the floor a lot. I still remember being a little obnoxious myself. I'm not saying that Josh was. Uh, you know, yelling at the band, maybe calling out some stuff that they were never going to fucking play anyway. So <laughs> I just like uh, like doing that stuff down in, in, in the front. My problem is girls always get mad at me because, you know, as a taller dude, Josh is a taller dude. As a matter of fact, we're kind of the same height. I don't like when girls poke me or get mad at me just because I'm fucking tall. So I guess my view of the floor is a little bit different than yours. <laughs> well, let me review the first. Jam, Rainy Day Women, instrumental, Watchtower, Tomorrow Never Knows, Passenger, Eyes of the World, Number to Why, Box of Rain. Now, there's a lot of alligators where it goes into everything, so don't quote me on the alligators. And then here's the second. Starts off with Night of a Thousand Stars, Unbroken Chain, the other one, Wheel, and then the other one back into that, Help slip golden road phil does a donor rap where you know i think everybody knows the story by now where phil received a kidney from somebody that had passed away and he's very passionate about talking about being a donor and it's uh nice it's always nice to see the crowd talk about or get into what he's talking about a little bit it's nice to hear phil talk to us because he never used to and then it was a Franklin's Tower into a Bid You Good Night. So uh, the show really ended well. Again, I'll go back to Josh, what he said, top to bottom. Top to bottom, the show is just really amazing. And it's something that I, if I would have seen uh, when I was following The Grateful Dead, I would have just said that was the best show I've ever seen. So this show is a really, really good. There's so many great jams. Well, I'm only going to ask about one song, so I don't really care. I mean, at this point, I wanted to know from you, what do you think is especially pleasing about Unbroken Chain? Uh, there were a lot of versions that we saw of this. Another show for another time. But this one is very, very good. What do you think about that song? What do you like about that song? Like, And if it's this version, Speak to this version. I love Unbroken Chain. I love even more that this is one of those songs we were talking about that Phil brought back to life that the Grateful Dead didn't really play very much. And so I felt I felt very lucky that I got to see it as many times as we did. And there was a joke called us the Unbroken Brothers because every time we saw Phil and Friends, they played it. This particular version is what, about 15, 16 minutes? And Phil said, before they went into this, this is where we play quiet and you listen loud. I still to this day think about how this song starts and it starts with that very slow introduction. And there is this, it's, it's a slow and patient build. And with Jimmy and Warren going back and forth and Baracko, Phil's vocals, 
I, during this particular time, thought Phil's vocals were great. I love hearing him sound, sing Unbroken, and the build up to the end of the lyrics, and then when they break it down into the jam, it is just get downtime. And if you can't dance to this, ver- or any version of Unbroken Chain, really, but when they get into the jam of this, it's hard to restrain yourself because it it's basically like you're exploding. You just lose it. And um, I also like the lyrics to this song feels very, again, it feels very like home. And it was shows like these and seeing Unbroken and seeing these types of shows that really made me this was life-changing stuff for me music during these couple of years like 1998 to probably 2001 2002 were incredibly formidable years for me as far as music becoming a lifeblood for me and not just something to do or you know you're in the car and you put on the radio and listen to whatever this became a passion and it was songs like Unbroken Chain and then chasing down different versions of it loved this version the way they again another just smoking hot transition from Unbroken into that other one you never knew the other one was coming until it was there and it was it was gorgeous and this is a great version and the Night of the Thousand Stars that opened it, it they, this was a perfectly constructed set as far as what I like to see Grateful Dead-wise. And that Unbroken Chain really starts the whole thing. Uh, that's awesome, because I could have talked about how I like the Golden Road, <laughs> which I never would have heard when I was seeing the Dead back in uh, the late 80s and early 90s. There, you know, You never would have heard a Golden Road. There was no such thing. I'm glad that I asked you about the Unbroken Chain, and I love the composition of this because there are several breakdown parts, and I think we're getting into this longer conversation, it's always about length and time, that has to do with how songs kind of are formatted, and it's interesting to compare Unbroken to some some Fish tracks too. And as I got more into Fish, I, I recognize that it's kind of a balance of like how they're doing this. And I think I think it's all it's all a big plan that we're not a part of, except when we're in the audience. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they're doing. I just always appreciate it when I hear it. And that Unbroken is, I like your term, re-listenability. That Unbroken is, is, is really money. And... Not to say that the whole show isn't, but I only asked about that Unbroken, Josh. So. But if you look at that section of music from the Unbroken into the other one where they did one verse, then they went into the wheel, then they went into verse two of the other one, then they went into Help on the Way, into Slipknot, into Golden Road, there's only one, one break that they took and that was after Night of a Thousand Stars. The rest of it was a seamless flow from that unbroken all the way through the last notes of Golden Road. And it was stitched together 
uh, just uh, unbelievably well. And you you mentioned it, the re-listenability of this show is off the charts because there are jams, there are there's you know meaningful songs. You can come back to it again and again. And this is a show for me that will never get old. And to pull this out of the stack of Grateful Dead related stubs today, I was super stoked. Honestly, as I as I've said to you in in past conversations, not related to stub me down. This show is one of the favorite concerts that I have ever been to, and that's a that's a pretty big list of concerts for this to be easily top three shows ever. Whoa, 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 whoa! Top three? Holy shit, dude! You just you. I mean. You know, when you dive off that big tall one at the swimming pool, like you have to know how to do that shit. <laughs> you can't just dive off there and take top three. I mean, I'm not gonna, uh, I want you to think about it. I'm fine with it. I like your choice. I think it's a great choice. It, it means it's probably number three. Because <laughs> if, if it was two, I would have said top two. But. <laughs> okay. Oh boy. In all seriousness, from the opening notes of this, and I have a pretty good version on CD, and from the opening notes of this show, there's not a there's not a moment where, like, this is one where you don't want to drink it all during the show because you don't want to have to piss and miss anything. That's the way I feel about this show. That's not true, but okay. <laughs> Can always find time. I, I'm not denying this. I think it's crazy. I hope that you don't have to apologize next episode for what you said this episode. But don't limit yourself to top three. That's a huge, go, why don't you start like real low, set the bar for your top 10. I'm not saying it's not in the top five. I'm saying we have a lot to talk about in the coming weeks, months. Let's leave that there, and then maybe I'll ask you another revisit question, and you'll be really surprised about how I gave you shit because you put it in your top three, and now you've bumped it down to seven. Fair. Over here on Stub Me Down, we are not in the rankings business. I can certainly say from my perspective I like this the most or the third most, um, but we will not spend a lot of time going through and saying this is the greatest version ever of this song or this is the worst version ever of that song because all of these things are subjective. We just want to have a conversation about some great music that we've seen and if a show happens to be good enough to crack my top five or top three (laughs) or top 30 I do reserve I do reserve the right to to assign some ranking to it, but that's only in my own personal experience. I'm not saying that this is the third best Phil and Friends show ever. Uh, I'm simply saying that I enjoyed it very, uh, very greatly. And this was, again, not, not a show that was just about the music, although, man, did it hit as far as the music was concerned. Uh, I agree with that completely. 
Uh, there's nothing that I disagree with except for you starting to rank your all-time favorite shows. <laughs> stop, stop doing that. Uh, <laughs> that's all the questions that I have. I just wanted to know if you had any further contacts, you got a story that you want to tell um, as we, you know, wrap it up here. Cause you know, once I'm done, I think, you know, I just get out of the box and say, that's it. I, you know, I got to get a beer. Yeah. So as we mentioned at the beginning, we were up there. It was the two of us with J.O. and his brother, Joe. Uh, one of the cool things about this was the whole day, if you if you recall, when we pulled up, there was a Lehigh football game that was getting out. And so we're all in the same lot and there's football fans leaving and hippies coming. Everybody's throwing the football. Everybody's drinking in the parking lot, having a good time. I think Joe was slinging bottles of wine. We had some food or something that we were we were selling. So it was a great pre-show. The show itself was awesome. But the ride home through the sticks of Pennsylvania back to Maryland, this this night was the night of the, I think it was the Leonid meteor shower, which is every, I don't know, however many years. But it's not every year, but it's whatever. It's not an astronomy show, people. It's it's a show about Leonid. So we just happen to be talking about astronomy, but I think it was the Leonid. On the way back, from the show, I was sitting in the back. We were in a Joe Suburban, I think, and I was sitting in the back seat and just listening to the post-show tunes in the car and everybody's just kind of chilling and, and soaking it in. And you're looking out the window and the sky is, it's pitch black. There's no ambient light whatsoever, but you just see shooting star after shooting star after shooting star. And it was like, I remember at one point, I looked up in between the two front seats and it was like somebody had taken a, sh a Sharpie or a highlighter and just streaked it across the sky right in front of us. And I remember pointing and going, holy shit, look at that. And Joe was driving and he looks up and he goes, you asshole, don't do that, I'm driving. <laughs> You're right. But there was, we saw, obviously, unbelievable number of shooting stars. And it, I remember since then, we've kind of referred to this show as the Night of a Thousand Stars. Great version of the tune at the beginning of the second set. And then we experienced this kind of cosmic symmetry on the way home. And that, that was a, a very cool, very memorable part of this show and and I do remember a lot of the details of this show because of the the special music the scene obviously times we had with Joe all of those things but but that ride home really was the perfect cap to the show to the music it it brought the whole universe kind of to one place for a moment and Again, the re-listenability re of this show, 11-17-2001. If you have not heard this Phil and Friends show and you like the Grateful Dead or Grateful Dead-related music, when you get in your car tomorrow or when you sit down to put on some music, go check this, this, this one out because you will not be disappointed. And if you are, I've got an apology for you next episode.
<laughs> I knew it was coming. I'll say that all that is true, and I remember that. The highlighter across the sky is such a great analogy for when we were coming home. It's really kind of hard to concentrate on the road when you're watching a meteor shower, but it was kind of awesome. The other thing I'll say too is that football game getting let out, freak show circus coming in was like a, a weird kind of convergence. I remember throwing a football with a guy, you know, I mean, I guess at the time I'm just turned 31. I still am semi-athletic uh, and like we're throwing a football and they started calling me Rob Johnson. So I got pissed. So Rob Johnson was a backup quarterback that started over Flutie and I'll never live that down. I, oh my God, I hate that. Rob Johnson. He could have, I wish he would have called me Doug Flutie. I just wasn't short enough. No offense. <laughs> it was a great show. I, I'm so glad that uh, you stubbed me down with this one. So I pretty much got, I got nothing. I'm done. Um, hey, real quick before we get out of here, uh, why don't you just run down the second set there for everybody? Starts off with Night of a Thousand Stars, Unbroken Chain, the other one, Wheel, and then the other one back into that, Help, Slip, Golden Road, Donor Wrap, and then it was a Franklin's Tower into a Bid You Good Night. I'm glad that we were able to to talk about this one. This was this was a lot of fun, and again, a, a great show to go back and listen to. Uh, we want to extend our thanks out there. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed this episode too. Again, check out the full show when you get the opportunity. If you are interested in checking us out on social media, you can follow us at stub underscore me underscore down on the Twitter and the old IG. We'll try and post some. Pictures, comments. We've been doing some commentary on some of the fish dinner and the movies. They did play party time, just so you know. And uh, please check us out there. Give us a follow. Give us some feedback if you have any. And we will see you next time we get to stub you down out of your shitty seats and down to the path. Bye.